0: I'll tell you, joy is the key to a proper attitude in life. And brethren, we're all going to face all kinds of trials and struggles. It's not all a picnic. It's not all a it's not all a hallelujah shout and match. I know that, friend. But joy is not created by possessions. Joy is not created by positions. Joy is created by a person, even the Lord Jesus Christ and a good dose of holy joy would do us all well and I'm not talking about silly putty religion here brother I'm talking about something that comes but from being rightly related to God and being in the presence of God I believe of all the people alive on planet earth today we should not be wringing our hands and worrying about the future and worrying about the end of the world and worrying about this and worrying about that I believe of all the people in the world we should have the joy of God in these latter days unparalleled to the rest of our society Great to see everybody today as uh, you are getting yourself situated. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter one, finishing the chapter today. Actually, not finishing the chapter today. We're going to finish it. We're going to come back to it next week, if you can believe that. So uh, we're going to look at a part of that part of this. uh, What we're looking at today again uh, in a week from now. we got a long passage today and I got, a, I got more, more things to talk to you about than we got time. So I'm gonna talk fast today, and we're gonna begin by reading these words of scripture out loud together. We're gonna to be in a, verse 12 through verse 30, and so if you would read these with me. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to thank you for the day. Thank you for the gathering of your church. We thank you for your word. Pray that it would inform us, but God, that it would transform us to be more like Jesus. God, make us um, lovers uh, of your word and make us uh, believers in it. But more so, Lord God. make the word to, to work in us so that um, so what we read will be what we live, and that's the glory of God. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to start with a, a gross overgeneralization, but here it is. We are a culture that's infatuated with incarceration, jail, prison, people getting locked up, that kind of thing. And I, and I say that just by looking at the news. I'm an I'm a addict I love to, to read the news. More importantly, I love to watch the news at night. And uh, you can't get through a news uh, telecast on TV at any time, especially local news, without hearing of someone who did something bad that for which they are getting locked up for. But it's not just our news and, and our media. Really, it's the shows that, that Hollywood is producing that we have decided we like to watch. Think of... Um, the the subscribe TV stuff that, that you all watch. Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, all those kinds of things. In today's day, we really do like those jail prison kind of movies. Uh, I'm gonna date myself. One of my favorites from the late 90s was was Oz. Remember that? The the characters. You know, y'all was like, no I don't remember what that is like all right, so that was the prototype for what we're go back and look at it because it was the prototype for what y'all are looking at now. Because y'all are looking at stuff on Netflix like Orange is a new black. And there's this whole series of of TV shows, of episode after episode, like on Netflix, um, showing documentaries of people in jail and what life is like in prison. Um, movies. There's a whole bunch of movies, obviously, about prison. I mean, the one to see is, is the one that's going to be the, the I mean, it's, it's like spans the test of time. Shawshank Redemption. You cannot get any better. Than, than the drama of Shawshank Redemption. Tim Robbins and, and Morgan Freeman. I mean, just Morgan's voice is just enough to close your eyes, just listen to him. And, you know, and it's, of course, that movie, the, the prison setting was just a backdrop. What we're drawn to in that movie is the, the lives, how they got to prison, what was going on with their lives, and, of course, the, the story uh, uh, featuring those two actors in regards to how they got out and, and life Afterwards, and y'all are gonna to have to explain this one to me. I, I don't really understand it. But then you have ESPN and O.J. Simpson. I don't get it. I, I use the ESPN app, and you know, I check the scores of of all kinds of games and stuff. And then you have that that little button that shows you live stuff. And this this perpetual thing about O.J. Made an American. I don't get it. I don't get our infatuation with a guy who played football that got married and was accused and acquitted of. Of, of killing his wife, and of course, who's now in prison. I don't get our infatuation with him. Uh, I was doing some research this week, and I came across upon, upon this quote, prison may not be any fun, but it sure is entertaining to watch. And that's the, that's just the truth, isn't it? I don't know, I don't understand our infatuation right now in Hollywood with prison, but there is one. And I think, to, to be honest, maybe the draw isn't necessarily that we like prison, or even the thought of prison, but it's just not far from us. There's not a person in here that doesn't know someone in your family, or a close friend, or a relative, or an acquaintance that has not been in jail, or perhaps is, has been locked up for a considerable amount of time, and so there is this intrigue. But here's what the movies don't tell you. Prison sucks. No joke. They don't always show that part of it. even the Netflix stuff that's showing some pretty uh, raw and just like it's on the on the extreme end of prison. We don't get the message that prison sucks. and And that's really where we enter our text. Paul is in prison. And, and the thing that we get from Paul is that he is locked up. He's in prison for a considerable amount of time. But the theme from that is not Paul in prison. The theme is the joy that he's experiencing in the midst of it. We read this book and we find out that the book isn't about prison. The book is about Paul's joy as he's in the midst of prison. More importantly, and this is the part that that we're going to bring out today, is the implication of being in prison is even though Paul talks about the joy that he had, What's happening to Paul is that he's suffering. Suffering. Say suffering. 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 Here's the truth. All of us suffer. If you're a human being living, breathing, walking on the earth, you are a person that suffers. And suffering doesn't play favorites. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, male or female. It doesn't matter how... um, uh, you know, whatever your status is in this life, the, the adage is you're going to suffer. It's not if, but when and how you're going to suffer. And that really is where Paul enters the text, uh, I mean, enters the discussion in verse 12. He highlights um, his disposition by, by saying, in, in other words, that really he's in prison. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what's happened to him, he's been locked up. And Acts 28 will tell us that he's locked up for at least two years. It's interesting, uh, in the Roman imprisonment system at the time that Paul is living, there were several layers of imprisonment, levers, there were several several le- uh, levels of imprisonment. Paul is not experiencing at this point the most extreme, although we could say that Paul has experienced some, some, br- some pretty um, severe suffering. Here Paul is under house arrest, he is chained every minute of every day to one of Caesar's uh, praetorium or imperial guardsmen. And of course, though he is imprisoned, he's in bondage for uh, uh, quite a long time. The big idea out of our text today is it's not the bondage itself, not the prison itself. It's the joy that Paul is somehow amassing out of it. But that begs the question, I mean, why? How can Paul do that? How can he talk about joy in the midst of suffering? And perhaps the question before that is, why do we have to have suffering at all in the first place? And uh, and for that, the theologians help us out. They tell us why there's suffering in the world, and the obvious answer firstly is, it comes from hard circumstances, but uh, peel that back again, and the Bible has to fill us in. We learn from Genesis 3 that God made a perfect world, that he placed... Uh, human beings in the midst of it, and he gave them a command not to eat of the fruit of a tree. And we don't know how many years or days they lived under that rule, but we do know, the Bible tells us in Genesis 3, that they disobeyed that rule, that they ate from the tree that God told them not to eat of, and then sin and chaos ensued. First, it we see that sin and chaos uh, Coming to to fruition in them, they hid from God, learning that they were naked and not ash- uh, and, and ashamed. shame comes on them, but the Bible also alludes to the fact that all of creation is tainted, this beautiful world that God has created, flowers in the garden, turns to thorns in our desert, and nothing is as it should be. One of the implications of of sin coming into our world is is suffering. And and Genesis 3 doesn't use this this word suffering, but it does use the word curse. And it's interesting to me how God cursed the world. First, the Bible tells us in Genesis 3 that God cursed Satan or cursed the serpent. And the Bible would say that uh, this is the curse that Satan got. Of course, Satan is possessing the serpent. He's, he said, you'll be cursed to crawl on your belly, which, you know, in my creative mind, I don't have a creative mind, but I just think about this stuff. It's like, all right, if he cursed him to crawl on his belly and, and to eat the dust that he's crawling through, what kind of posture did that the serpent have before that? Did he have, like, little legs split out between, I mean, what what in the world was he doing? He cursed the serpent. He cursed uh, cursed Eve. He said you would have pain in childbirth. Women, I mean, you gotta blame Eve. He, he said that... Uh, that, that Eve's, um, Eve would want to um, overrule her husband, but that the husband would rule her. And he said that, that the man, or he said this to Eve, but he really meant all humanity would be in opposition to, to Satan, that Satan would um, bite his heel, but the man would ultimately crush Satan's head. That ends up being good news with Jesus on the cross. Then he curses Adam, and Adam's curse is really a, uh, a curse on the ground, such that all of the ground would suffer. And so you want to know why labor is hard now? It's because God cursed the ground so that we would have to work for our sustenance. And so, I mean, this, everything suffers because of this first suffering. And we aren't, uh, we aren't devoid of suffering in our world. Firstly, we see it in the media. We see widespread poverty, and unfortunately, technology and social media just pulses uh, front and center on us every time we open our phone or look at the news. This past two weeks, we've seen um, just horrendous natural disasters overcome much of the world. Four hurricanes that have directly affected um, some of the United States. One that's crawling up the eastern seaboard right now that maybe... Uh, Thursday or Friday, we're going to feel the effect of in uh, strong winds and some, some, finally some fall temperatures. There's some of you who have family in Puerto Rico and, and those areas that those areas have been devastated, Texas and, and Florida. And I mean, why do those things happen? The pristine world is tainted by sin. Suffering ensues. Widespread diseases and death are, are all around the world. And so we see it in the media. We see it all around us. As a suburb of DC, I mean, we live in a pristine kind of an area, but we're not—we're um, not hidden. It's not hidden from us the, the the homelessness and rape and abuse that are in our world, and even in the church. I say, you know, Christians aren't immune from suffering, and we experience the the, the tension of being in relationship with other people. We have kids that are sometimes get unruly that we have to discipline. Um, all kinds of things. We have pain and sickness and illness in our bodies that we wish we did not have, but that's a part of the suffering that we experience in our world. And so, why does suffering happen? Well, because of hard circumstances. Some of those that we bring on ourselves, like Adam and Eve in the garden, suffering happens because of sin. Suffering also happens because it comes from the hand of other people. And that, particularly, is what we see in our text. Suffering at the hand of other people is called persecution. And Paul shows us that. Uh, First hand. Firstly, but, you know, Paul is no stranger to suffering at the hand of other people. In 2 Corinthians 11, he writes, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That stone was rocks, not not drugs. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, sevenfold dangers. That could be a song, right? Like a rap song. Danger everywhere. Verse 27, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul is no stranger to suffering. And he even talks about it in the text that we're looking at today. Look at verse 15. Paul says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Skip down to verse 17. The former proclaim Christ who those who preach Christ from envy and rivalry are trying to get at me. He says they do this out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So here's what's going on. Supposed believers who were jealous of Paul and his ministry, decided they were going to 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 get him back when he was put in jail by um, by being more aggressive in their evangelism. It's sort of like Paul's down. He's out. He's out for the count. And I'm not going to like lend him a helping hand to help him get up. I'm going to take my bat out and I'm going to like beat him some more. Suffering at the hands of other people. Theologians say another way to look at this is that people in the Christian community, particularly in Rome, disapproved of the ministry that Paul had. They didn't like what Paul was doing with the church. They didn't like what his message was. So in view of his imprisonment, they decide that God has enacted judgment on Paul and they're going to take advantage of his situation to preach Jesus correctly. And so they start evangelizing. And so what both of these views basically tell us, I mean, the takeaway is that a lot of persecution that we experience And Christendom actually doesn't come from outside of the church. It comes from inside the church, which, I mean, how sad is that? But you've experienced that, too. And church history proves this. Think about the Protestant Reformation, which began in the 1500s. You know, before that, the church was basically Roman Catholic, right? Which wasn't a bad thing. But at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, you get the the initiation of evangelicalism. And then we have all these... Protestant denominations. Since the 1500 Protestant Reformation, there are now, in this day, about 45,000, that's 45 three zeros, different Protestant denominations. I'm not talking churches, denominations, like headquarters of churches. So what I'm saying is that's that's, that's a lot of division, right? That's, that's people um, not reading the Bible the same. That's people uh, listening to other people and disagreeing. That's me saying what you're saying is not right. And I mean, the, I mean, the, the underlayer of that is is—is not just suffering. It's the implication of suffering. But more than that, it's just telling us that we're the implication of suffering is that it divides us, even in the church. And so almost like the secular political world, you have left, right, Republican, Democrat. You've got liberal, conservative, and there goes the church. But aside from all that, here's what Paul's conveying in this text. Whether suffering comes from our own circumstance that we bring on ourselves, or whether circumstance, uh, suffering comes from the hands of other people, if you're a Christian following Jesus, you're going to suffer. That's what he's saying. We are all going to suffer because we're followers of Jesus. And he says that from the very beginning of his letter to the, the church at Philippi. Verse one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. I mentioned this last week as we unpacked this first introduction. The word that he's using there as servants is the Greek word doulos, which means servant, but more importantly, it means slave. And so in my community group this week, somebody brought this up, just the idea of, of being a slave. Paul says, I'm a slave of Jesus, and a slave is someone who has no will of their own. A slave is someone whose will is swallowed up in the will of another. And so I used this phrase last, in last week's sermon, who Jesus saves, he enslaves. Jesus is, he wants you to give up your life for his, that his will, that your will will be consumed in his. If you are a servant of Jesus, if you're going to serve God, you're going to be, you should be a slave of Jesus. Here's what he's doing in this, in this, this text right here. He's saying to serve God is also to suffer for God. He's up in the ante. And that, I mean, if you're an American Christian, that don't sound good, right? Because, I mean, American Christianity is not a Christianity that squeezes you and makes you feel bad. American Christianity makes you feel good and warm on the inside, like giving you a, a cup of hot chocolate that has marshmallows on top, right? So you can suck it, and it's like good, that fills your body with nice, funny feelings. <laughs> I don't, my, my hot chocolate doesn't actually do that, but my daughters does. Think about it. A lot of times in American Christianity, some of the churches, I mean, yeah, there's plenty of churches that espouse this. There's Christian ministries that espouse this, that that we, we want this help me feel good, health, wellness, prosperity doctrine that Jesus is there to serve me and help me get what I want out of life. Make me feel good. To help me achieve the American dream. And let me qualify this: if you've been in those churches, they're not completely heretical. But if that's, I mean, if that's the the thing that you base what the Bible says about our life and Jesus, then then you're you're taking that you know those few verses that say that First John three that God would have me to be healthy and to prosper as my soul prospers. God wants us to have good health. He wants us to be successful. He wants us to prosper. But that's not the main ministry of Jesus. That's an American version of Christianity. And if our motive is is that we just want to be healthy and prosperous. We've missed the boat. We want an American Jesus. And the American Jesus is not a biblical Jesus because the biblical Jesus says in this world we will have trouble. Scripture verse John 13, John 16, 33. And and Paul is no stranger to this because Paul, I mean, when Paul meets Jesus, Jesus brings trouble to Paul. What What does he do? What does he do? Paul is en route with letters to Damascus to persecute Christians. Jesus knocks him off his horse, shines a bright light in his face, calls him to go blind, forces him to, to, to fast for three days, and then he sends a man by the name of Ananias to Paul. This is all in Acts chapter 9. Sends Ananias to Paul and says to Ananias, say this to him, I want to show you how much you're going to do for my sake in the kingdom of God, and oh, by the way, add these few words on the end. And I want to show you how much you're going to suffer. That was Paul's introduction to Christianity. And so being a Christian and suffering, is like identifying a brand by their logo. Let's see if you can identify these logos. What's that? I wanted to put an X, right? The, the new iPhone 10, because you want it and I want it, but none of us want to pay $1,000 to get it. So I haven't decided if I'm going to ask for it for my my birthday in November or for Christmas. (laughs) All right. What's this one? What's this one? Yeah, you're addicted to that one right there. What's this one? You're addicted to this one, too. What about this one? They're getting a lot of work these last few days. But check out this next one. This is your logo, folks. This is your logo. So you notice all these logos, we know what they are without any words on them. And and many of the many companies and brand names are going to this, this identification of who they are without the words associated with it. But here's the here's the logo for Christianity. It's a logo that that doesn't say, come and I'm going to make your life better. It says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself pick up this heavy cross, carry it, and then follow me. It says you're going to suffer, and then following me is going to lead to your death. Not a physical death, but a death of of you being who you want to be instead of God, you being who God created you to be. When you follow Jesus, when you follow him well, even in suffering, I mean, almost like these logos, people will be intrigued by you. That is when you suffer well. And what does it mean to suffer? Well, it means that God is I mean, life itself, but perhaps even God, as he prunes you and and changes you into who he wants you to be, um, wants you to do that without whining and complaining and being bitter about life, even when it's hard. And here's the thing I think that suffering does for us more than anything. It, it attracts people to us, but it draws them to Jesus. Did you hear that? Suffering attracts people to you, but it draws them to Jesus. Think about the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. This is a hardened, blue-collar guy that's torturing people for a living. And he encounters Paul and Silas, actually locks them up in the inner prison. They're in, uh, in chains. They're stretched from limb to limb, and they're singing hymns. God sends an earthquake, and all of their shackles are loosed, and the, the the jailer is about to kill himself with a sword, and Paul says, What well, don't do that? We're all still here. And the man in seeing all this unfold says these words, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I think that's what happens when we suffer well. Think about the Christians in the first century, the, the first three centuries of, of of Christendom. Some of the hardest centuries to be Christians, uh Since Christianity was was initiated, those kinds of people jeopardized their lives to go and help people who um, who had suffered plagues and the diseases of of those days. So much so that family members were leaving people who were diseased by themselves, throwing them out of their houses and and Christians would come and not only befriend, but care for these people up close and personal uh, in, in jeopardy of risking contamination themselves. Not only them, think about the martyrs, martyrs who were, who were torn by the mouths of lions, martyrs who were chained to stakes and burned alive. Think of those who the Bible writes about in Hebrews 11, verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Those are good words. The world's not even worthy of people like this who suffered for the Lord, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves on the earth. And because of this joy for people like this that Hebrews 11 presents to us in the midst of their suffering and their pain, I mean, this is what happened to Christianity. It goes from this tiny little insignificant sect to the most dominant religion in all the Roman province. Not in a number of uh, uh, a couple hundred years, in a couple, a couple hundred years, a couple years. A couple years, Christianity goes from this insignificant nothing, who people believe in Jesus, to the dominant religion in all of the Roman Empire. And so here's the effect. How you go through suffering is important because the prisoners are listening. But in this case, not just the prisoners, it's the guards. And so verse 12 through 14 in our text, Paul is under house arrest and he's the imperial guard. They're, they're, they're Caesar's elite soldiers. I think of the old guard here. Now, obviously, our, our old guard aren't necessarily guarding our president, but they had the task of guarding the emperor, the, the imperial guard. They guarded the emperor and they guarded select Uh, political prisoners as well. And so Paul was a political prisoner in Rome, and he's literally chained wrist to wrist with these guardsmen all day, all night. Acts 28 tells us for two years. He can't go to the bathroom. He can't go to sleep. He can't do anything without a guardsman attached to him. Think about that. Think about that not from Paul's perspective, because, I mean, that's obviously a measure of suffering for him. How would you like to be tied to someone forever and could never, I mean, never have any privacy for your own? Think about this from the venue of the guard. They got to spend probably a couple guards a day, depending on how often they rotate it. They got to spend hour upon hour with one of the, you know, save Jesus, one of the most important persons in all of Christian history. They got to. They got to hear Paul pray. They got to see him read the scriptures. They got to see him entertain some 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 people that were able to come to him and talk about their 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 circumstance. And Paul encouraged them in the Lord. They got to see Paul um, write some of these manuscripts of scripture. They got to see Paul in amongst all the the circumstance that he was experiencing have the peace that passed be, way beyond understanding. And apparently, many of them came to faith um, just because of their attachment to the Apostle Paul. And so here I, here's the, the, the point I think Paul is making, at least in these first three verses. He's saying, despite my situation, the gospel is advancing. In fact, the whole Roman guard that should be guarding Caesar are coming to faith. They're being affected. And those who preach the gospel because of my chains are doing so More confidently. And more specifically, here's what this says to us. I think it says, like Paul, you're being looked at in how you live your life. You, every one of you that calls yourself a follower of Jesus, you're being looked at in how you live your life, especially when you suffer. People are listening to the sermon of your life. And if you think you're not preaching, you are. The way you live your life, even when you don't use words, you're, you're proclaiming something about yourself. More importantly, you have the opportunity to proclaim something about the God that you serve. And people learn a lot from us. They will learn more from us when, life is, when our lives are hard and we're exposing it a little bit, when it's leaking out and they're seeing us deal with it, than they will when our days are cheery and the sun is shining on us. And so I'm encouraging you, don't be shy around your neighbors, those that you're uh, able to befriend here, among your co-workers, definitely among your family members, let them see some of your pain. Let them let them to some of your suffering. And then prayerfully, some of the, the joy in the midst of the difficult circumstance that God is in, enabling you to have will be seen as well, and it might change their whole disposition. And think about the hard things that we go through. I mean, some of you have family that, that have ailments, cancer. Some of you have been betrayed. Some of you have kids that aren't following the Lord. Some of you have um, family and friends that are in rough places that that you're distraught about. And sometimes it's just easy just to keep that stuff to ourselves and, and not share it. But I think Paul here is encouraging us to... Uh, um, to let people in on not just the hard times, but the joy that God might be giving you through that. Not fake joy, but the authentic um, ability to deal with the circumstance that he might be giving you. And that, more than anything, is going to get somebody over the hump of believing in Jesus, rather than you just having a life that's, that's, that's full of ice cream and cake on top. And so here's, here's what Paul is saying. Don't waste your suffering. That, that's, the, that's the whole message of this text. In fact, he's going to articulate that in, in all the rest of the words that he'll say throughout the, the, verse of, the rest of chapter one. Paul's saying, don't waste your suffering. As Christians, you're going to suffer for Jesus. And suffering is going to come from without and within. Outside, from those who don't understand Christianity and don't want to. It's also going to come from inside Christianity. Those that you, I mean, that you that you trust and when you suffer, he's going to tell us two things. Firstly, remind yourself of and rest in God's sovereignty. Look at verse twelve. He says, "I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel." Skip so down to verse sixteen. Knowing that I'm put here in prison for the defense of the gospel. And so the question is, where was Paul put, and, and why? Here's Paul's perspective. He's like, "I know. I know. It looks like I've been put here in prison for all this time because of." At the hands of other people. I'm being persecuted for my faith. Obviously, Paul was put in prison, Acts 21 through 28 tells us because he's simply preaching the gospel. But here's what here's Paul's perspective. He's like, they didn't do it. God, God put me here. And what Paul is speaking to is nothing less than the sovereignty of God. And here's what the sovereignty of God says the sovereignty of God means God has full and complete control over. Everything that he governs. I like to say it like this. It's God's in chargeness. If you haven't figured this out yet, Christian or not, God is in charge. There's some things that we want to control. Oh, so badly, even your kids that you can. Someday you parents you are going to figure out that you cannot control your kids. It's going to shock you. But God is here. Here's your joy in this. God is sovereign. God loves your kids more than you do. And He is superintending over their life, over their good days, and over their bad days, after they, way beyond after they leave you. Our son's in college right now. We went to see him last night. Jonathan played a awesome, it was it was like it was beautiful. It was beautiful. We actually had to pay to go hear our son play. I'm just, like crazy. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. And then after the concert, we wanted to like hug and kiss him. He's like hanging out with his friends. I was like, we came all this way for this dude. He wants to hang out with his friends. Here's my consolation. My God loves my son. And, and he's, in the, he's a neat thing. He's fitting him in to college. He's got friends. and I mean, they're all like musical, creative. He's, he's where he's supposed to be. And I trust that my Lord knows what he's doing with my son better than, better than I do. And here's the cool thing. That's the same thing about your life. God is superintending over your life, good and bad and different, and he's going to, as Romans 8, 28, bring about your uh, his good for your joy. His purpose is going to be completed in you, and so rest in that. But here's how this works out sometimes. Sometimes we want to believe that God is sovereign, but then suffering happens, it comes, it's like, oh my God, I didn't know it was gonna be this hard. And when it comes, I mean, not only does it hurt, but we start having questions, you know? It's like, here's the first question we ask. Did God cause this? And if he, if we can't figure out that God caused it, another question we ask is, is did he allow it? So I believe God's sovereign, and so if God is sovereign, he's in charge, and he's superintendent over my life, I, I'm, I'm, I'm close enough to God to know that Sometimes he causes suffering in my life to, to, to sort of, you know, make me hear him, make, make sure I know he's out there and he's pressing me to be more like Jesus. And then sometimes he allows stuff to happen. And so we 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 tear ourselves up trying to figure out which one of these things is going on in the sovereignty of God. And here's what I'm saying. You're asking the wrong question. Firstly, Paul says, rest in and remind yourself of the sovereignty of God. But here's the right question to ask. You should be asking not did God cause it or allow it. You should be asking, is God good? This is the question of this of, of Philippians, period. Is God good? Think back to, to, to chapter one. Verse, we're still in chapter one. Verse six. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We, we talked about this in community group. too. Y'all don't come to my community group. I don't have room for you. This is the stuff we do in community group. We talk about stuff like this. And here's the cool thing that Paul does in in. Verse six of chapter one, he doesn't say God began a good work in you. He's going to complete it. He reorients our our idea about who God is. I mean, who is God to you? Is God some mean benefactor? I mean, he's some, some mean dude that neglected you, that's going to punish you, that's that's trying to make life bad for you. Sometimes we superimpose who our father is or who the authority person in our lives has been on God. And Paul says, no, no, no. This is who God is. It's he who began a good work in you. And and the the thing to note there is, if God is going to begin and complete a good work in you, he has to be good. God is good. The unfortunate thing is, some of us won't give God any attention unless he takes us through some stuff. And the church said, amen. Some of y'all need some stuff. Paul... Paul needed some stuff. God needed, Paul needed God to take him through some stuff before he noticed God, Jesus. He knocked him off of his horse. Some of you should leave today praying, God, knocked me off my horse so I can see you. This famous C.S. Lewis quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes we need God to shout because we don't hear him otherwise. And and he shouts in the midst of the pain that he brings and allows in our lives. And so when you're suffering, when when you know God's there, he's sovereign, he's in charge, but you're still suffering. Here's what Paul is encouraging us to do. He says, rejoice more in your relationship with Jesus than you do in anything else. And so this is what Paul does in the rest of our text. Firstly, he says, Rely and uh, pray and rely on the Holy Spirit. Verse eighteen. I'm going to speed up here because so I got to get done. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And so, pray and rely on the Holy Spirit. If I'm going to, um, if 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 Paul is teaching me here how to not waste my suffering. First, he says, remind yourself of and rest in God's sovereignty. And the second thing that he says, and he's going to trace this out to the rest of the text, is pray and rely on the Holy Spirit. Paul's saying prayer works. Don't just pray for yourself, keeping your prayers all quiet and um, isolated. He's saying it's okay to share your prayers with other people so they can pray to God on your behalf for your deliverance. We need that. Don't be so private that you can't ask other people to pray for you. And then he says, don't discount the help of the Holy Spirit. And he reminds us of that because here's our tendency. In times, when times are hard and we suffer, sometimes we turn to other things other than God. And the Bible calls that idolatry. We will take uh, a non-God thing and make it our, our God. We will worship that instead of God. We will look for meaning and identity in other things except God. And I would tell you, we all have idols. Some of those were those icons we saw on the, on, the, on the screen here a couple minutes ago. Here's the thing about an idol. At some point, it's going to disappoint you. It's not going to give you all the things that you want to get out of it. Paul continues in verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Um, Paul is imprisoned. prison. He's reminding us, you know, I'm in prison. I'm going to trial. I'm going to appear before Caesar to defend myself as a Christian, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And he says the outcome is absolutely unsure. I don't even know if I'm going to escape this. But here's what he was sure of. I'm either going to be vindicated because I am going to testify and Caesar's going to let me go or I'm going to die. And this is how he concludes that. Verse 21. For me to live is all about Jesus. You see that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is one of obviously the most quoted scripture verses in this book. This is one of the most quoted and memorized verses in all of the Bible. And it articulates Paul's theology about Jesus for himself, but also for us. He says, you know what? I'm probably one of the smartest guys on the planet. I'm brilliant. I've got a lot of things going for me. I could have a lot of material things, but here's what I've learned. That none of that stuff is worth it because I got all I need. All of my life is all about Jesus. More importantly, he's saying, you know what? There's going to there's come a chance that uh, I got a choice, live or die. And for me, Jesus is more important. And so if I die, I'm going to go and be Christ. So I would choose death. What would you say? If, if this this is Paul's like theology of life, if you had to come up with a theology of life, what would you say for me to live is? What do you live for? Is it for your kids, how they grow up? Is it for your house, your money, your retirement, your career opportunities that come in life? For me to live is I rejoice in Tim Keller says what you rejoice in is the thing that is your central sweetness and consolation in life. To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. I like that word, sweetness. The way, the the true way to suffer well is to have the right treasure. That's what Paul is is encouraging us to do. That's what Tim Keller is coming behind and saying. We got to have the right treasure. Sweetness and joy come when we figure out how to treasure. Jesus. No amount of suffering or pain can snuff that out. And so another way that suffering uh, well does in light of God's sovereignty is it takes our focus off of ourselves and allows us to consider others putting their needs above our own. That's what he says starting in verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you. Paul is having this internal dialogue with himself, saying, you know what? I can't figure out which, which one I should do. I, I know if, uh, if I stay here, God would use that for your benefit so that I can continue to disciple you and present Jesus to you. But, oh, by the way, I know that if I die right now, I'll be ushered in the presence of God. And that's far, far better. He says, which one will I choose? And he says, ah, for your sake, I'll choose choose Christ. And and here's what he's saying in that. He's saying that suffering is about him, but it's not just about him. And I would tell you it's the same thing with you. Your suffering is about you, but it's not just about about you. It, it really does include other people. Sometimes we suffer for other people, and when you suffer well, what you're doing is allowing other people to, uh, to see how you're modeling that. One of the things that's missing in our culture today, in our Christian culture, is we have no one that's walking alongside with us modeling what suffering looks like. And, and here's what Paul is doing. He's like, you can model that suffering for someone else. If you learn to do it and learn to do it well, you can model that for someone else. And lastly, Paul says we should receive suffering as a gift. Skip down to verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. If you believe in Jesus, that God has gifted that. that. Um, If you believe in Jesus, it's because God has gifted that. But here's the message of this text. If you suffer for Jesus, God has gifted that too. And that's hard to believe, isn't it? I mean, Lord, help my unbelief right there. And if you see suffering as a gift, I mean, that really is the only way that we see that God has suffered for us. God, your suffering is a gift, and it's a gift because you've already suffered for us. How did God suffer for us? He suffered in the form of Jesus on the cross, dying in our place for our sin, John Stott says this. He's a English Anglican. Uh, he says, "I could never believe in a God where it was uh, where it's not for the cross." In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? That's in his very famous book, "The Cross of Christ." And so, here's what we do in the middle of pain. We're suffering a lot of times. It's like, "Ah, Lord, why, why am I going through this? Where are you in the midst of it anyway?" And you know, there was one who said those same words, kind of the Gospels uh, convey that Jesus, when he was on the cross, hanging on a tree between two thieves, he cried these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the, the, the true reality is we have a God, his name is Jesus, who has suffered for us suffered with us by putting on our skin, living life as a human, condescending from eternity to where we live. But not only that, he suffered for us, dying a death that he didn't deserve for us. And here's the thing, Jesus, not only does he know what it was like to suffer, but Jesus suffered when he was innocent. And most of the time, we are not. We're not innocent. We sometimes deserve the suffering that we get. And so let me conclude by, by saying this. Some of you are in prison. A lot of you are, are suffering. If you're human on a planet, you're suffering. This world is not the way it was intended to be. Some of you are suffering from a, from a perspective that you have pain in your body, you've got diseases that you're, you're dealing with, or you know someone that does, and you're taking medicine. And I mean, there's nothing that's relieving you of some of the discomfort and, and of the plight that, that's happening to you. Some of you are, are feel like you're in prison uh, relationally. Perhaps there's abuse, verbal or physical. Perhaps you're in a, in a relationship that feels emotionally distant, and it feels like a prison to you. Perhaps you're single, and the prison for you is that you want to be united. I mean, you, you feel alone, and you want the, um, the, the presence of someone else in your life and just life feels like a prison to you. Perhaps you're actually addicted to some substance, that you've allowed some substance to rule your life, or, or something like that. sex, pornography, drugs, or the like. And, of course, if you've subjected yourself to that, then you've caused your own suffering. And probably the worst kind of suffering is when we suffer and we haven't done anything to bring it on. We've, we suffer like the video we saw with IJM. We suffer at the hands of other people. Someone is, is making you to do things that you weren't made to do. Someone is forcing themselves on you and, and causing uh, life to suffer because of what they're doing to you. And that just is the worst kind of suffering. And it definitely, if you're, if you're suffering, you feel imprisoned by, uh, by some of the things I've, I've named just now, you need ministry. Okay, and so we're a church that believes in counseling, and you can come to the pastors and ask for counseling. We also have Reach Back; we have a counseling agency that comes alongside us to help us. And just like, um, just real serious issues that may take a little bit of time for you to, uh, to seek, um, not just forgiveness, but healing and recovery, redemption and recovery. In so if you if you're falling in one of these these lanes, you feel imprisoned by your suffering. You need help. Don't don't live life alone. But that really is the beauty of community. We have the privilege of being not isolated, but living in community with other people. And we can you know, discreetly divulge some of the ways that we feel imprisoned by our suffering. And then let me conclude with this. I made, uh, I made jobs at the Prosperity Gospel. You know, We're not a church that you come to and you see a sign that says, come to Jesus. He'll bring you peace and give you everything that you want in the American dream. That's not our church but we are a church that says, come and suffer with us. If you're a Christian, God has called you to suffer. You're going to suffer in this world, but isn't it cool that we get to suffer not alone, but suffer together, and that's what it means to be the local church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would touch people, um, not just in their minds and become head knowledge, but God, that you would Change our hearts by it. Lord, we suffer because we live in a sinful world. Sometimes we suffer because uh, we do sinful things. I pray that you would deliver us from evil. I pray that you would um, deliver us from ourselves. God, would you deliver deliver us into your hands by your great gospel. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen Amen.